Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another Out of the Question podcast. I'm Pastor Charles Roberts and I'm joined by my co-host, Andrea Schwartz. Hi, Charles. Today, we are going to, in some way, revisit an issue that we made reference to in a previous podcast where we talked about the changing evangelical views on human sexuality. And in that podcast, I mentioned an event that would be taking place at a host church within my own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, in St. Louis, that uh, is promoting the idea that LGBT people can be practicing Christians. And as we speak, that conference is going on at this very moment. So it is an opportune time for us to have a discussion about that and to talk about why it is important, whether you are Presbyterian or Baptist or Pentecostal or nothing at all, or don't go to any church, I should say, why should this be something to be concerned about? And I am pleased to be able to uh, add to our conversation today. We're sort of changing the format a bit than what we have been. A fellow pastor and friend of mine, Reverend Andrew Dion. Uh, Andrew, how are you today? Very good. It's good to be with you. Why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about where you live, where you're a pastor, and just a very brief statement about that. I am the pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church. It's a PCA church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And before that, I was pastoring. I was an associate pastor at Christ the Word Presbyterian Church in Toledo, Ohio. And before that, I was studying for my MDiv at Covenant Seminary. And before that, I got a doctorate in music from Indiana University and left that behind. You were a part of Clearnote Church while you were there, which is an independent church, Pastor Tim Bailey, who has been one of the leading lights to the discussion about these events that are going on. Maybe the best way for us to start, Andrew, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about what the Revoice Conference is, a little bit of the background of it, so people will have a better understanding of why this is a topic for discussion. Revoice is actually the work of another organization called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. That organization is led by a man named Preston Sprinkle. Others who are involved in Revoice are also on the board of directors of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, like Nate Collins and Greg Coles. So Revoice is their uh, attempt to bring, bring their views into the mainstream church. And this is the first conference that they've held. And uh, I was watching the video of the plenary session last night, and Nate Collins said, um, welcome to Revoice 18, the first of many. So this is something that they intend to either do yearly or perhaps more than yearly. And the whole purpose of it is to, I would say, that the whole purpose of it is to normalize homosexual temptation, desire, identity, all of those things in the conservative church in America. So we're not talking about liberal denominations that have gone down this road a while ago. This is the Presbyterian Church in America, conservative, reformed, confessional church. It's being hosted in that context. And so I think their tagline for the conference is promoting LGBT flourishing in the historical Christian church or something along those lines. I, I may have gotten that wrong, but they want to promote lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, plus whatever that means, flourishing in the church. Well, let me say the plus may in the future include pedophilia and bestiality. In other words, what they're saying is we haven't probably come up with every permutation that we want to be thrown into a biblical framework, and somehow everybody is supposed to accept that as normative. That's correct. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. If you deem desires 
uh, not being an area that sin affects, well, then you have to open up Pandora's box to all desires. And so they can't properly make a distinction uh, when it comes to the difference between a lesbian relationship and a, and a, a pedophile relationship. Terrible word to call either of those situations. But it's impossible to, uh, to make distinctions that, uh, and certainly to hold the distinctions that Scripture holds. I think uh, it's important to address an issue right up front, simply because there's so many things to talk about, and it's hard to enter into this discussion without using hyperbole and perhaps sounding to overstate the significance of this event hmm. and what's happened. This is more than just the camel with the nose in the tent. This is about the camel almost halfway in the tent at this point. You know, some of some of our listeners may remember a few years ago. If you were an observer of the church scene, the uh, the mainline Presbyterian Church had a big conference called, Re- and the theme was reimagining, reimagining God. And I think there was somebody represent. They were people representing pagan religions, and they prayed to Gaia and God, the Mother Spirit, and all that business. And you know, that's that was remarkable enough. But it's easy to dismiss that as being the mainline. Protestants because they've kind of gone off the rails a long time ago, but that's not what we're talking about here. This is a very, very different thing. And to also get it out on the table, this is not simply the PCA, as important as that is for at least Andrew and I, um, but the Southern Baptist denomination is dealing with this to some extent, and it will have an impact and continues to have an impact across the denominational line. But I want to um, address the issue that I think is sort of the theme of what they are attempting to do, and that is that a person can be oriented toward same-sex attraction and have same-sex attraction, but be celibate and therefore live a quote-unquote pure Christian life, something along that line. Uh, Unless I have mistakenly stated that, let me, if I may, simply put that to rest right away. In God's law, in Exodus 20, verse 17, the Lord said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant or his, his manservant. You know, in, in a little slightly different translation, it says you shall not desire these things. And mm-hmm. so the idea that there's nothing wrong with having the desire for homosexual activity or homosexual attraction is simply untrue based on that one verse alone, I think. One of the things that comes to light here is, and I've heard it said, you know, it's not a sin to be tempted. Because you see, Jesus was tempted, and it couldn't be a sin to be tempted because Jesus was sinless, and therefore it's not a sin to be tempted. The truth of the matter is that we're to control our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. And so if we say it's not a sin to be tempted, therefore my temptations are okay, we've avoided the reality that you can sin in thought. And so if you encounter a temptation that's contrary to Scripture, then that's something to be confessed, not something to be given special consideration to. The same way if I have a desire to beat my husband because he gets me mad, that doesn't mean that, well, see, I, I can just entertain that desire. I've got to recognize that as sin. Yeah, a couple, a couple thoughts in response to what you've both said. Uh, I preached recently 2 Timothy 2, I think it's 22, where Paul says to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. The word there in the Greek is epithumia, and, and it means strong desires. It, it is a, I think it's a, a restatement of the 10th commandment of coveting. And so right there, he He says run. Of course, he always, when he has flee, he has pursue that goes along with it, and we're to pursue righteousness and faith and love. And so right there, it indicates to me that desires are something to actively flee, actively fight against. Of course, we could go to many passages that use that same Greek word, epithumia, and pull out the same lesson from that. So the idea that we're not to mortify desires is is foolish. The Sermon on the Mount teaches it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The other thing I would say is we have to be very careful about the way we talk about Jesus' temptations. We do know from Scripture that he was tempted in the ways that we are. And yet, 
the context within which he was tempted was very much different than ours. Jesus was not strapped with a sinful nature. We are. We have inward sin that Jesus never had. And so we have sins that well up from our nature that Jesus never dealt with. So those who say, well, Jesus had desires for same sex and Jesus had homosexual desires, I say no. No, he did not. Those are, those are affections and desires that well up from a sinful nature, which he did not have. Now, there may have been outside stimulus that Jesus saw that could have been a temptation, but he did not have a sinful nature. This, this drives into the, the doctrine of uh, Jesus' impeccability, and it is a very important part of the conversation we're having right now in sexuality. Well, since most of the people who are attending churches today, it's, it's a fair assumption, Charles, I think you'd back me up on this, have been educated in state schools. They have had a contrary religious view fed them in terms of pluralism, accepting people, not being judgmental. So it makes perfect sense that they would take that world and life view and bring it into the church and try to humanize the church. Instead of being a place where biblical law is elevated, we're going to have man's law elevated. One of the things that Dr. Rush Juni points out in many of his works, and I'll mention just specifically here his commentary on the book of Leviticus and this issue that we're discussing, is that the deification of man, the idea that man is God, Uh, and will define his own reality, inevitably leads to the worship of the state, to the worship of Moloch, the Baals. And in all of these pagan societies where the state is considered divine, the paganization, the brutalization of God's standard of human sexuality inevitably follows. And Rustuni points out in his writings from eyewitness accounts in ancient times of how these things were common, bestiality, and homosexuality. And it is no coincidence, I don't think, that as our own society has moved in great strides toward this same situation, where the state is considered God walking on the earth, the state is um, the voice of reality for people, and its vehicle for conveying what it wants everyone to think and believe are the government schools, the government and corporately controlled media, so that this culture pervades us at every turn. And maybe that is an explanation. I don't know, Andrew, I wanted to get your thoughts. How has it been that a denomination that came into being just not much more than 50 years ago on the very premise of holding to a solid, reformed, biblical morality according to God's law and the Westminster Confession, how has this happened in less than half a century? Well, as you were talking about what Rush Dooney taught and the, the alternate religion of, of the state and, and the, um, the worldview that's taught in our schools, I was thinking about a book that I've recently read on Alfred Kinsey. Yes. And of course, Kinsey in 1948 published his tome on the, uh, the sexual practices of the, of the male and then in 53, he wrote one on the female. And he's, he was a hack of a scientist. And to boot, he was himself a, a sexual deviant. And then all of his samples were, this was, you know, he was doing his research while the young men and women of this country were off fighting a war. And so his sample came from sexual deviance in prison and, and whatnot. So his, his research has been, has been debunked time and time again. But the point I wanted to bring out is he published those books, and they won the day. Media, schools, universities all bought into his research. And basically his intent was to say, stop being fuddy-duddy Puritans, open up your lives to sexual experimentation, 
And you'll find that it actually helps your marriage. You'll find that it, uh, that it is a part of your expression. And so that's trickled down into our universities. It's trickled down into our schools. Certainly our government has uh, bought into that scientism. I don't think it's science, it's scientism. And so we're reaping the fruit of the intensely funded, sophisticated work of scientists who hated biblical morality. All of our pastors, all of our elders have been taught in, in uh, universities, and perhaps they didn't have a church that was teaching them discernment to be able to discern between arguments. You know, so maybe that's a way it's rooted in. I think there's always sin. There's nothing new under the sun. And that we, when it comes to why the church has, uh, is going off the rails in this area, I think it's been due to the lack of concern and uh, faithfulness of those who have been called to be, to keep watch. And so I would put it on the, the shoulders of the pastors who have cast a longing eye to the world instead of calling people to repentance and to righteousness. Well, I will let you admit that pastors have responsibility to teach the flock and be the watchman. But you made the point that the public accepted Kinsey. Well, mm -hmm. guess what? The public accepted Darwin. And Darwin cooked the books too, and people have cooked the books since then. The fact is, people want permission to sin, and if the institutions that are supposedly going to give them the thumbs up or the thumbs down says, okay, let's entertain this now. So we have whole churches that basically don't want to refute evolution. They don't want to refute the Big Bang. It's only a matter of time where the Bible will become illegal in churches because it's so not accepting of all the people who are there. Yes. And the question of sexuality will bring a lot of pressure to bear on that uh, question of whether or not we're allowed to open and preach our Bibles, uh, for sure. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there, there has been easy acceptance of that which flies in the face of, of Scripture, a departure from Scripture, whether that's because enlightenment thinking and, and uh, humanism have, have just pervaded our minds and there's no discernment or whether it's a failure of the church to clearly and prophetically call our culture to belief in God and to submission to his laws, probably a combination. I just don't see how it's possible for a church to uphold the scripture and not tell its, its congregation that you can't send your children to a place that's going to be undermining and blaspheming God's word on a regular basis. So, it's a combination of guilt. I don't think it's just the pastors, and I don't think it's just the congregation. I think everybody wants to be happy and let's not fight with other people because their lives are somewhat comfortable. So as long as they have a comfortable life, why rock the boat? Hmm. Well, I think it's interesting, too, and I, I wanted to bring up this topic because it is very much related to this issue. Uh, and I, ha I may have mentioned this name in a previous podcast, and I know, Andrew, I've mentioned it to you in, in our own conversations. Camille Paglia is, uh, is an interesting commentator on modern times. She herself is a lesbian, but she has a, a very, very interesting view on the development of these things in society. She actually opposes a lot of this uh, for bizarre reasons, I'm sure. But um, one, of the, one of the comments that I heard her make at a forum at a university somewhere and you can find this online, was that when societies, especially in the Western world, which has been the home of Christian civilization, when societies begin to decay and fall apart, she said you can see this in the, the, the emphasis from a strong, heroic type of masculinity to gradually more progressive, effeminate characters of men. And she pointed particularly in antiquity how the, the, the statues move from being, as I said, these sort of heroic, muscular, powerful figures to where the men became more and more portrayed in art and, and, uh, and sculpture, very effeminate and delicate. What's interesting about that is that the New Testament speaks of this very thing, 
And this has become an area that has just been completely ignored. Andrew, would you speak to that a little bit? Well, it's mind-boggling that she makes this comment. And very interesting that she would have more discernment than many people in the church Yes, on the question. I mean, her observation that uh, civilizations fall when masculinity is perverted or effeminized is, is something that no one believes today. If you use the word effeminate, you lose people. I just heard about an ordination exam in a, a fellow uh, in a separate, not, not my presbytery. And uh, a man asked, uh, one, of the, one of the pastors asked a man if he would be able to recognize a man who's effeminate. Well, the man responded by saying, well, if he were wearing a dress, I suppose I would know that he's effeminate which is not to answer the question at all. Wearing a dress is transgenderism, but being effeminate is, is, is playing the woman while appearing the man. And so just that Camille Paglia would understand this, she's illogical in the sense that it seems like it would change her worldview, it would change her stance as a, as a lesbian and as a feminist, but, it, but she is apparently willing to live with tension in her life uh, that's unresolved. And so I think we're seeing what she talked about played out within the church and within our culture, certainly. And it's troubling. Well, I believe it's um, in the Apostle Paul in his writings, he makes reference to the fact that he's giving a list of the, uh, the sorts and types of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he uses a very specific Greek term. That's um, right. That's right. The, speak to that a minute. Please. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Uh, there are two words in there that speak to sexual issues. The first is malakoi. Uh, the singular would be malakos. And then arsenikoites, which that, that is a, a word that uh, Paul coined for a, a betting a man, the second term. That means sexual relations. But the first one, malakoi or malakos, is most properly translated, I would say, soft or soft men or soft ones. And so in the New American Standard Version, you have it translated effeminate. But if you look at the ESV, they skip over it. They refuse to translate it, and instead they translate those two words as a phrase, those who practice homosexuality. And so they... They don't handle that word, and then in the notes, they say something about catamite and sodomite being the two participants in homosexual uh, relations. And that still doesn't get it, because malakos goes beyond just sexual activity. It goes to a demeanor. It goes to style. It goes to not taking on responsibility. It means being a soft man. Of course, malakoi or malakos is the word that um, Jesus used when speaking of John the Baptist and those coming out to see him. What did you come out to see a man in soft clothing? Same word there. And he says, no, they're up in the palaces. (laughs) (laughs) So that word is, I think is key to the whole discussion regarding revoice. What revoice is trying to do is to remove Malakoy from the Bible, just like the ESV did, right? They, they want a space for same sex attraction, desires, orientation, identity to exist, but stopping at the point of activity that our Senecoites. And so I think for us to, counter what's going on with revoice malakos needs to be and study of that singular word and paul's inclusion in in that list is going to uh, be critical it's going to be crucial it always offends me when i see certain behaviors of homosexuals called effeminate like it's it's femaleness it doesn't look at all like femaleness it's an affectation to Mm -hmm. me 
since it's so uniform across the board, it almost looks like there's a spirit behind it that's easily identified. And I think that stating at first that the attraction's okay, but it doesn't get fulfilled, that's just opening the door to, well, why not? Two people of different genders who are attracted to each other, they don't have to stop. So why would we have to stop? We're already got same-sex marriage. So it's, it's really hard when you're not standing on the rock, which too many church people aren't standing on the rock, to be able to defend a position without feeling as though you've given into being judgmental or sexist or things like that. Well, and you use the word effeminate, and you're immediately judged by 98% of the people out there as being judgmental. It is a word that even the translators of the ESV, who are theologians we know, got embarrassed about because they knew it would be divisive. Other than the courage of the Holy Spirit protecting those who teach in the church and giving them courage, I don't know how we work around that and repentance coming, but let me, one other thing you said femininity is God's design for woman. Femininity is beautiful. Femininity is defined. In the beginning, he made them male and female. And uh, both in the image of God, both have dignity before him. And yet men and women are created for different purposes and given different strengths. Men don't make babies. Women do. And that's a beautiful part of femininity. Eve was called the mother of the living. We want to make a distinction very clear between effeminacy and femininity. Femininity is good. Effeminacy is a man trying to play the woman and doing it and not even coming close, not being able to come close because he's still locked into his biology. And so it is, it is play acting and what comes out is just a caricature, um, neither male nor female. And, uh, and so we, that distinction is, is critical. In, in using the word effeminate, we mean in no way to diminish femininity. Um, I'd like to focus uh, again on the specific, some of the specifics of the, the Revoice conference um, and just to maybe put this in a, a little different perspective or to emphasize a point that I made earlier, we're talking about um, a congregation giving itself over to sponsoring this event that is a part of the PCA denomination. There's been at least some sort of tangential support or appreciation, I'm not sure what the right word would be, from the PCA's official seminary, Covenant Theological Seminary, of which you, Andrew, are a graduate this is the denomination of Francis Schaeffer, of D. James Kennedy, to name just a few of the leading lights. Uh, it's interesting to me that in terms of Francis Schaeffer, some of the people who have sort of started going down this, this path of uh, we, we've got to be friends with the culture type of thing, look back to the early Francis Schaeffer and his efforts in Switzerland. Uh, but what's interesting is that in the latter part of his life, the man wrote several books, one of which he borrowed heavily from the writings of R.J. Rushdoony, uh, Christian Manifesto, uh, but also The Great Evangelical Disaster, in which he pointed out the, the serious problems uh, of uh, a, a declining respect for the absolute authority of God's law word. So we have this event taking place, and we have some very, very interesting people who are involved with it. I'm wondering, Andrew, if you could speak specifically about some of the people, like you mentioned Nate Collins. There's a fellow by the last name of Hill, who I believe is, is a professor somewhere. Um, there's a woman who spoke last night. I saw a little bit of her speech, who is a non-practicing lesbian Catholic. Talk about some of the, the, the unusual sure. speakers at the event. Yeah. Uh, before that, let me just mention Schaefer. When I was studying art and uh, getting a doctorate in music composition, Schaefer was my bread and butter. Yes. He was the man who brought together various strands of philosophy and various strands of different types of artwork and allowed me to think like a Christian as I did it. My goal, which I've given up, and, and that's a whole other conversation, was to write Christian music, Christian instrumental abstract music that 
that uh, would convey the gospel. And um, I gave up on that because the Lord called me just to talk with my mouth, which is a lot easier. <laughs> but um, but Schaefer, here we are at Revoices in the, the shadow of, of the Schaefer Institute at Covenant Seminary. Now let me just interrupt. I think, if I'm not mistaken, didn't he pastor uh, a church in St. Louis before? Yes, he did. Yeah, Covenant, yes. Covenant yes. Presbyterian Church, right, yes. right up the road from Covenant Seminary. Yes. yes. So, yeah, there, his connection to the seminary is um, profound. But, yeah, there are a number of people speaking. Last night, Eve Tushnet, she spoke last night. And she wrote a book called uh, Gay and Catholic. And she is part of the celibate gay Christian movement and very outspoken, very flamboyant, at least the way she writes. I found her presentation to be somewhat scatterbrained. And she writes for First Things, a very well-known author and um, on this topic as well. Uh, Nate Collins is the man behind Revoice, I think, more than any other. He is a S- Southern Baptist Theological Seminary trained theologian. I think he has or is getting his Ph.D. in theology. And he's a married man. He's admitted he has same-sex uh, attraction uh, to, to men. He's married to a woman has several kids, and I recently heard him on a podcast. He, he described his desire for men as aesthetic, hmm. not sexual. And then in the next breath, he says, look, we can't, we can't see everything in our lives as sexual. That's to approach sexuality in a Freudian way. I, I, I'm not sh- sure fully what he means by that other than, you know, Freud Freud couldn't, you know, everything anybody did had a sexual uh, motivation. And, and so he says that his, his desire for men is aesthetic. He can appreciate beauty. He can appreciate looks without it breaking out into sexual desire. And um, again, that, that, is, that is, I think, to deny the depth of our sin and the way that our hearts so easily deceive us. Would we do this with any other sin? Would somebody talk extensively about appreciating the aesthetics of a thoroughbred racehorse? And, and, and right. talk about that, I'm just, I'm just consumed with the beauty of it. No, it's not sexual, but I, I, we all talk about the things we find beautiful. This is a counterfeit. The argument is a counterfeit because... It wants to say that the attraction itself, as you pointed out earlier, isn't wrong. So Mm -hmm. we have to first and foremost, let's get everybody to agree it's not wrong. And then if we wait a couple of decades, then they'll say acting on those not wrong feelings is okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's the way it'll play out. Another speaker is Wesley Hill. And Wesley Hill is an author and a... He's a professor at a university. Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but uh, perhaps it's here. The Trinity School for Ministry. Right, that's uh, a, a slightly more conservative Episcopal seminary. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And he, uh, he's, he's written a book called Spiritual Friendship. And that is one of the main topics at Revoice is this idea of spiritual friendship. What he does is he goes back through the church and through the ages looking for ways that that friendship between same-sex individuals was promoted, was celebrated. And he's also, what you have to know about him, and he's, is he's a man who uh, struggles with homosexual temptation. And so the book chronicles his struggle with his own temptations and the many times that he fell in love, is the way he says it, with just friends, uh, men uh, who were his friends. And, you know, how sad it is that there's no way to fulfill that love and that that he has to live a, a celibate life. And so the idea of spiritual friendship, Scott Saul's 
has, who's a PCA pastor, has pushed it in his same-sex attraction forum back in 2014, and it's catching on. And it's really trying to promote same-sex covenanted, like officially covenanted, cohabiting relationships without sex. For me, that is to take fire in the lap and expect not to get burned and is very dangerous that that is being promoted at Revoice in a group filled with, uh, I'm assuming, men and women who struggle with his same struggles. And now they're, they're saying, come as close as you can, but um, don't touch. And it's, it's obnoxious. Do either of you know when the whole idea of struggling became something to make it so that people would be sympathetic to you as opposed to someone saying, well, then get your thinking in line? You mean a victim mentality? Right. In other words, I can't control this, so everybody's welcome here because none of us are perfect sort of thing. Again, I think that is uh, one of the weaknesses of the church today. I don't know what the root of it is, but we have a tendency to think that, uh, one, our, our sin is superficial. And then secondly, that there's then no no way to change. Because it's superficial, there's no need to change. But it's very hard to change anyway, right? So this may c- tie into biological views of how people are made up and and psychological views of how people exist and, and uh, you know, materialistic views of things. But we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit changes hearts, changes affections, changes us radically. And I, I get the feeling that, they, that these speakers, one, don't understand the depth of sin that, that they have to overcome, but they don't also look to the Holy Spirit in hope. Well, if they've denied the word, and the word is very specific both in the Old and New Testament about those who will not be part of the kingdom of heaven, Mm -hmm. so they've denied God the word, they've denied God the Father in terms of in the beginning and male and female and what's normative. Mm -hmm. So why would they not pervert the Holy Spirit? I mean, I can't imagine... Anybody proceeding very far in accepting this way of thinking if you take God's word seriously. I think that that's the major problem uh, in so-called Bible-believing churches is that there is a claim to take that seriously, but it is understood and has been parsed into a very pietistic, inner spiritual, just me and Jesus type of uh, spirituality or way of relating the the full word of God, the full orbed faith given to us in scripture is far more than that. Yes, it involves, I mean, we all struggle with sin in some sense. The thing missing in a lot of evangelical churches, and sadly it it is apparently the case in more than a few PCA churches, is the standard of God's law. God has given us an objective standard based on his definition of justice and righteousness and holiness and the, the failure to abide by that leaves us culpable and guilty before him. Now, thankfully, his elect people have a means of forgiveness and deliverance, but even we sin, and therefore we have to deal with the consequences of, of what we do. I'd like to quote something that Dr. Rastuni wrote on this issue in his commentary in Leviticus. He says, not only does the Bible, without exception or qualification, condemn the practice of homosexuality, but it also uses language of a particular bluntness in describing it. Sodomites are called dogs in Deuteronomy 23.18 and Revelation 22.15, and the latter text declares that they are outside of God's kingdom. And he points out that this means that the term dogs applies to sodomites and lesbians alike and has a reference to the activities which are resembling canine practices. So I think that there, you know, there's a sense in which we have been culturally desensitized with the massive onslaught of, of media and movies and things of this nature uh, to where we, in, on this particular issue, ha- have lost our sense of abhorrence. And to refer to Rush Dooney once more, he actually quoted a conversation he had with the late Otto Scott, one of his dear friends, 
where uh, Otto made the statement that a, a culture that is in decline is a culture that can't defend itself or won't defend itself. And Revoice is, is just uh, uh, on full display, the fact that uh, this is one more nail in the coffin of what is left of the remnants of Christian culture in this country. I'm going to go back to this word struggling with sin. The Bible never really talks about us struggling with sin. It talks about us committing sin and that when we commit the sin, we go, we confess it, and that repentance involves a 180. So if I'm struggling with an attraction for something, do I go and bring it before the Lord and say, forgive me for my sin? Or do I wallow and relish in this idea that I have a struggle? I think that's where the language comes in and, you know, if somebody struggles with arthritis, well, we're going to understand that because you don't confess arthritis. You experience it, and it's this burden that you bear. We've made it the same thing with these obviously and clearly sinful activities, sinful thoughts, and sinful speech. Well, I think that that, that is a, an excellent point, and it's not just I, – I think the transition has been that the idea of struggle – becomes, as you said, something uh, of a positive thing. And it means that, you know, at least we're on the road, so to speak, rather than recognizing that the, the, the struggle itself or the temptation itself or the tendency or the desire, the coveting is a sign of a very deep, deep-seated problem. Mm-hmm. And as I pointed out at the very beginning, God's law states, you shall not covet, you shall not have these desires. And it was Jesus who restated that in saying that, in specifically explicit sexual terms, if a man even looks lustfully at a woman, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yeah, let, let me also say that, I, you know, picking up on something you said, Charles, we've lost the, the sense of that these sins are abominations. We've lost the uh, shame over sins. And, and I think shame over sin is something that if you think about the fact that the Revoice Conference is, is using the word flourish, that LGBT Christians could flourish in a uh, historic Christian context, you know, why not LGBT strugglers? Uh, I can't use that word now. Um, <laughs> LGBT <laughs> plus um, uh, folks um, who struggle with that temptation, you know, why not? be ashamed over their sin, right? To, to repent, to, to know the goodness of, of repentance from the sin and, the new, and to walk in newness of life, right? We, we just, we have sanitized homosexuality to an extraordinary extent. And generally speaking, uh, in, in our culture, in our movies, in our, uh, on our television programs, right? It's uh, homosexuality is a positive good. And yet, if you read homosexuals who have written about the homosexual lifestyle, I just read Randy Schilt's book called And the Band Played On. He chronicles yes. San Francisco in the early 80s yes, and when the AIDS epidemic was starting. And it is a horrible read. It's a horrible read because you see the abuse between people that happens in these relationships, the abuse of the body, but just then the, the, the dominance and submission, the, um, the ravages and the tolls that this takes on a, a person's soul and body. And that no one thinks about those things when it comes to homosexuality. I mean, we, we've got Revoice going on, and they're talking about flourishing and embracing your sexual identity. And you know, images of bathhouses in San Francisco keep popping into my mind because I read that book. You know, and the and the 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 rampant promiscuity, um, and 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 now Revoice is telling us that there's going to be some part of of queer culture that makes it into heaven, and and it's just a mind-boggling uh, disconnect. It's a mind-boggling refashioning of of uh, homosexuality for sure. And so uh, there, the loss of shame, if the church can bring back shame for not just this sin, shame over divorce, shame over uh, infidelity and adultery, shame, uh, shame over gossip, then the church will be able to 
lead people by the gentleness of God to, um, to repentance. But shame has to return. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, I believe that in some fashion, the uh, Revoice leaders have made it very clear that men and women who uh, were homosexuals, I'll put it that way, and found yes. a way out of it, uh, that they're not welcome at this conference. Yeah, I mean, from what I know and have seen on Facebook, uh, people who registered have been turned away after after their Facebook page was scoured or something along those lines. Who, who knows how it was done? I don't know how it was done, but I know people were turned away. They're cultivating the, their audience. They're protecting the audience. And uh, like-minded folks are being allowed to participate the, uh, at the conference. I'd like to point out that this untruth that pervades so much of Christendom that we're supposed to hate the sin but love the sinner and sets up this idea that the sinner somehow or other is divorced or detached from his or her sin. And the common thing that is levied against someone who will say, thus saith the Lord, is that you shouldn't be condemning other people. Well, if we understand the scripture, they're already condemned. Our presence and our voice should be to tell them they're heading off a cliff not to celebrate that they're heading off a cliff. Well, I think that's uh, that's part of the feminization of discourse. I think you can't speak prophetically anymore, and that thus saith the Lord. Uh, even even reading the Bible and reading passages is condemned as being as being judgmental. And what we want are people always to come to us and make suggestions. Well, here are a few things for you to consider. That's how we want our preachers to preach. Here are a few things to consider. You know, who am I? Just take or leave what you want. And that is, certainly that's not the way that I've been trained to preach. And it's not the conviction that I have from Scripture about how we communicate. Uh, there needs to be clarity. There needs to be conviction. There needs to be a, a prophetic type voice in the church and the church is just sorely lacking in this right now. So I think that's motivated out of just uh, changing ideals for, for communication. And I mean, we don't even talk to each other face to face anymore. We want to text. Everything's passive. (laughs) That's true. I can say though, there are a swarm of people who number one, aren't sending their children to public school. Their children are being educated with Mm -hmm. God's word as the foundation And quite frankly, they've been asked to leave churches when they want to promote the idea of every area of life and thought is dependent and gets its root from Jesus Christ. So the mainline denominations and these denominations, if they go that way, who are going to exit are true believers. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Andrew and Andrea, we have uh, ranged across this topic of the Revoice Conference and the issues involved with it, and um, I hope it's been helpful to our listeners. You know, it's our custom in this podcast to recommend resources to our listeners who may want to pursue some of these things further. So, um, uh, Andrea, let me start with you. Are there any books or articles that you might want to recommend to people? Not offhand. Basically, we have to go back to having a high view of Scripture and how to be able to recognize that Scripture doesn't contradict itself. You can't on one part of the Bible say, this is bad, and then say, but this is okay. So I guess if I was going to recommend anything, I would send people to Dr. Oshduni's Systematic Theology and the three-volume set of An Informed Faith, so that you have a sense of what are the foundations by which to judge all the new and different trends that you might find in society. Okay, and I've already mentioned his commentary, his uh, his commentary series on the Pentateuch, but specifically the commentary in Leviticus as an excellent resource. Uh, I would also mention for the more philosophically minded, his book, To Be as God, A Study of Modern Thought Since the Marquis de Sade. Um, without going too far down the path about who de Sade was, he was a model for our time, even though he lived a couple of hundred years ago a despicable pervert in just about every sense of the word, and yet his perversions and his ideas have seeped through all the areas of, of Western culture, 
and have manifested themselves in places like we see now taking place even in so-called Bible-believing churches and denominations. So I'd recommend those two. Of course, uh, like you said, read your Bible, (laughs) read what Paul wrote, read what God's law says in the books of Moses. Uh, Andrew, what about you? Do you have any books you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Yeah, the the first thing I'd recommend is questions 137, 38, and 39 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Excellent, yes. It is amazing what uh, depth there are in this exposition of the Seventh Commandment. I mean, it's very convicting, and you can go one by one through these and feel how the revoiced speakers are violating what is in the seventh commandment. So that's the first thing I'd recommend. It's a, it's a short read, but very powerful. The second thing I, I would mention is a book by Eva Cantarella called Bisexuality in the Ancient World. She's an academic. Um, the, she's uh, at the University of Milan, and this book is on Yale University Press, so a, a big-wig academic. And she was studying homosexuality in the ancient world. And, and what she basically found out is it was basically bisexuality, that the men uh, and women went both ways. And it's just a fascinating read on Roman and Greek cultures and the difference between the Romans and the Greeks and their, their pedophilia, their, their hang-ups on pedoph- pedophilia. So if you want to understand homosexuality and um, of the ancient times. I think this is the book to read. Um, and then finally, I'll, I'll mention what I think is the, the best book on this, which is Tim Bailey, Joseph Bailey, and Jürgen von Hagen have written a book called The Grace of Shame, Seven Ways the Church Has Failed to Love Homosexuals. And, you know, the topics, let, let me just uh, pull, Removing the Sin of Effeminacy, um, another chapter is the great, the gay Christian error. Next one is godliness is not heterosexuality error. Next one is sexual orientation error and the reparative therapy error. And such were some of you error and the living out error. So, so Tim works through a lot of the uh, recent um, recent organizations and recent thoughts on this. And the book is very pastoral. Okay, and that's not not something we talked enough about is is ministering to people in bondage to to homosexual desires. Tim has spent a lifetime doing that, and uh, the book is very pastoral, very helpful. And I would I would hope that all pastors, but everybody, but certainly pastors, would read that book. It's called The Grace of Shame. Thank you very much, um, Andrew, for those recommendations, and also for joining us today. Andrea, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? No, I've enjoyed talking with you and meeting with you, Andrew. And uh, I always love it when people give book recommendations because the next thing I do is I go find them. (laughs) (laughs) Put them on the wish list. (laughs) No, I usually put them on the buy list. (laughs) Well, on that note, then we will uh, bid farewell to our listeners and invite you back for our next podcast uh, very soon. And thank you all very much. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.